0: Church family, we're going to do something a little different uh, in the Word this morning. As, as we come, this first time this year, we have, we have come to a Sunday where we celebrate the Lord's Supper, uh, and, and, and we take part in, in what is intended to be uh, something uh, that is not just tacked on out of routine to the end of a worship service. And so uh, you, can, you can listen as I, I read along here. You can turn there if you want, but it's not going to be where we stay. But to give us some context of what we're going to do this morning, I want you to listen to what the Apostle Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. 1 Corinthians 11, Paul writes and he says in verse 23, For I received from the Lord, so Jesus told me that which I also delivered to you, For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. Here's what Paul says, the Lord told me, and I told you exactly what He told me, that on the night He was betrayed, the night before Jesus goes to the cross, the night when Judas would betray Him into the hands of the Jewish leaders, that on that night, at that last last supper meal, Jesus took bread… We know this. It's in all four Gospels. He broke the bread. said, this is my body broken for you, meaning I'm going to suffer. My body will be put through suffering. I will be broken. My body will be pierced. It will be bruised. It will be broken in a way so as to shed blood, and it is on your behalf. And that's what this bread represents. And then he says afterwards, he took the cup. After giving thanks, he said, this cup represents the new covenant in my blood. What do we mean by the new covenant? Well, prior, or in that time of of Christ, the world was under, and specifically, the, the people of Israel were under the old covenant, with all its myriad of sacrifices, with its festivals, all these things, and awaited a new covenant that God had spoken multiple times, Jeremiah 31, 31, where God says, in that day, I will write a new covenant not a covenant where my law is written on stones, but a covenant where my law is written on human heart. And Jesus says, my blood that is gonna be shed, it's on the basis of my blood, it's what my blood is going to accomplish, that's going to inaugurate, that's going to bring about this new covenant. And Jesus is really clear then, as often as you do this, as often as you take a supper like this, do it in remembrance. And so right off the bat this morning, we need to understand that shortly uh, in our time in worship, when we come to the table, what we are doing today, church family, there is a part of what we are doing today, which is to remember. We're remembering who He is. We're remembering what exactly He has done, what exactly He has accomplished. But when we come to the table, we're not just coming to remember. Listen to what Paul says back in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 27. Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. But a man must examine himself, and in so doing, he is to eat of the bread and drink of the cup. Paul says this, at this table… Which, by the way, and we'll make this clear as we we go elsewhere in Scripture this morning, only those of us who are in Christ by grace through faith come to the table. You cannot do something in remembrance when you do not have it. Those who are outside of Christ who do not know the saving power of the blood of Christ, they don't have it to remember. Therefore, this is only for those of us who are believers, who are in Christ from a personal decision of repentant faith in response to the Holy Spirit's conviction by grace through faith. And it says that for those of us who come to the table, we're not just remembering, but there is such a weight and a seriousness to what we are remembering, that if we are living our lives in a way that is not reflective of who He is and what He's done, if if there is a habitual pattern of our life that falls outside of what the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ represents, then we we need to turn from that. We're not to take from, we're not to go into the Lord's Supper willy-nilly, casual, running by the seat of our pants, come in, rush in, peel the thing back, eat your cracker, peel the other thing back, drink your juice, walk out, ooh, Lord's supper done. But that rather than taking it in an unworthy manner, we not only remember, but we examine. That there is an examination with which there is time and, and moment to reflect and examine, does my life... Is my life being lived in a way that is reflective of what Jesus has done and I am remembering? And so what we're going to do today, church family, is we're going to allow a passage of Scripture, much larger than what we'd normally walk through, but for the sake of today, we're going to walk through it and, 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 and walk through it in a, in a broader way. We're going to allow a passage of Scripture to help us examine ourselves and to really clarify what we're remembering. And so I invite you, if you've got your Bibles, turn with me to the, the book of 1 Peter First Peter, you are more than welcome if you don't have a Bible or you get distracted by your phone, you can use the pew Bible and the seat back in front of you. the page number will be on the screen. But go to First Peter, and we're going to look at chapter one today. Now understand, if we were to be preaching through and walking through First Peter, there would probably be about seven sermons from chapter one. So there's a whole lot more depth we could dive into, but for the sake of examining ourselves to come to the Lord's Supper. 1 Peter chapter 1 is excellent. This is what he says, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 1, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ to those who reside as aliens, scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, all are places which are in modern day Turkey, who are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father by the sanctifying work of the Spirit to obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with his blood. May grace and peace be yours in fullest measure Right off the bat, Peter writes, and this is what he tells us. He tells us who we are. Who we are, not just who we are, but who we are, because there has been a response. That's what, that's what that last chunk there, those who are foreknown, uh, chosen according to the foreknowledge of God by the sanctifying work of the Spirit to obey Jesus Christ. He's talking about those who have come to faith in Christ. It says, if you've come to faith in Christ, you are an Alien a sojourner, a stranger. You are a, a person who is living in a place that is not your home. This is not your land. This is not your country. Elsewhere, Scripture will use the term ambassador. You're, you're someone living, someone representing a foreign kingdom, living in a place foreign to yourself, but on, on representate, representing the place where you are from. It says, we are aliens, that when you and I come to faith in Christ, we who once by nature reflected this broken world, were friends with this broken world, were enslaved to the pattern and way of life of this broken world, that we who were once that, we're no longer that in Christ. And we're not no longer that, but we are strangers, aliens, outsiders, outcasts, ambassadors, we have been made something fundamentally different. And so by way of telling us who we are, church family, as we tune our minds and as we walk through this passage, we need to remember if you're in Christ, you're not supposed to fit in with this world. If you are a follower of Christ and you feel really, and and more and more so as, as culture rejects a broader aspects of biblical morality, you should feel more and more alone and out of place because in Christ we are aliens. This is not our home. It's a temporary place, a temporary assignment. We await our home. Do we remember who we are? We'll examine further that in a moment, but not only does he tell us who we are, he tells us what we've been given, what we've been given. Look with me. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Jesus Christ, who has caused us, according to his great mercy, to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. He says, what have you been given? You've been given a salvation. You, You and I in Christ have been given a salvation that is driven by God's compassion, by God's mercy. That God fundamentally in His nature saw us, who later on in First Peter will tell us we're living according to a futile and empty, a powerless way of life, that He saw us and was stirred and moved with compassion to act in a way so as to fix the problem. And according to his great mercy, he's caused us to be born again or to be born anew. That we who scripture says were once dead in our trespasses and sins, who were enslaved with no other option than our trespasses and sins. God has caused us who have responded to fa- in faith to Christ. Those of us who are now are aliens, what has he given us? He has given us a hope that is alive. And it is alive because our hope is not some abstract piece of thought, but our hope is a person, Jesus Christ, who has died, has risen, and will only ever be risen, which is why our hope is alive. Our hope is alive because Christ is alive. We have been given a living hope, which is through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Not only does the salvation we have give us a living hope, it gives us an inheritance it says, We've obtained an inheritance which is imperishable, undefiled, and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. It's imperishable. It's unable to perish. It's unable to be corrupted. Nothing from the outside can come into this inheritance and wreak havoc and destroy it. It's, un, it's imperishable. It's undefiled. It's unable to spoil. It means it's a word that refers to its beauty, its luster. It is so beautiful, but it will never lose an ounce of its beauty and glory. And that's easy to understand. All of us have bought something. You've bought a shirt that you just really thought looked great in the store. What does it look like a year later? You bought a car that looked beautiful, and monetarily, the moment you drove it off the lot, it decreased in its beauty. That's not our inheritance. It doesn't It will never lose its beauty or its luster. it will not fade away, meaning it's everlasting. There is no end. That there is an inheritance for us that is glorious we'll see in a moment beyond what we could ever imagine. It will never lose any aspect of it and it will never come to an end. And by the way, it says the salvation we have in God is reserved in heaven for you, meaning for those in Christ, there is no shot of somehow it not being reserved for you. When you come to faith in Christ, you are granted this inheritance. No matter if you've come from some big name Christian family or if you've never, if you're the first Christian in your entire lineage, doesn't matter. You have been given the same inheritance. The inheritance we looked at passages in the Christmas season the inheritance, that of the firstborn. You've given an inheritance. You're co heirs with Christ. And it's reserved and guaranteed. It's guaranteed if you're in Christ on your best days where you follow Christ brilliantly, and it's reserved and guaranteed on your worst days where you go, can I get anything right? It is reserved in heaven for us. And look what it says. Not only is this salvation a living hope with an inheritance reserved, but it says we're protected. It's reserved for us who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. The very power of God that spoke the world into being the very power of God that parted the Red Sea, the very power of God that caused fire to fall from heaven, the very power from God that rose Jesus from the grave, the very power of God that is able to, to wash clean by the blood of Christ the sinner, the very power of God that su- creates us, sustains us, saves us, the very power of God, it says, protects us. That if we're in Christ, we've been given such a salvation that God's protection falls on us. Protection from what? What? Protection from sin and those things that would threaten to dampen or, or if it could, to, to pull us away. There is a protection there, and it says that we experience that protection through faith. Now, that protection is through saving faith in Christ. That's how we get that protection. But you and I will experience that protection as we walk in confidence, in trust, in faith in Him, a protection for a salvation ready to be revealed. And now Peter starts to show a hand a little bit. That we're not just being protected for the here and now. There is something to our salvation that is already, but not all yet. There is something in our salvation coming we are be protected from. Let's keep going. This salvation is so great. Look what it says. In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been distressed by various trials so that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Here's what he says, church family, that what we've been given is a salvation that is so great, is so uh, wonderful, that no matter what trial we face, Those things which would seek to destroy our faith, that in this salvation it will actually refine, grow, and purify our faith. Those trials, those things which always seek to take something away in refining our faith by the faithful protecting hand of our Father, will actually be made to result in our reward and glory when Jesus returns. That trials no longer defeat us, rather now. Trials are things that God uses to grow and reward us. This salvation is so great that though we do not see him, we love him with a real love, and though we don't see him now, we trust in him, and we rejoice with a joy inexpressible and full of glory. That there is the ability now, though, though not one of us has seen Jesus fully in the flesh, and that moment is coming for all of us in Christ, there is the ability now to possess a joy that is unable to be quantified by human words. There is the ability to to love Him with a real love, to experience a real intimacy with Him now in the salvation that we have. Not only that, but this salvation is not something new. It's not too good to be true. It's not something some religious leaders got together and and pinned to come up with. Look at this, verse 10. As to this salvation, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come made careful searches and inquiries, seeking to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. It was revealed to them that they were not searching themselves, for serving themselves, but you in these things which have now been announced to you by the, through those who preach the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Here's what it says, church family, the salvation we have by grace through faith in Jesus Christ, fully God, fully man, who lived, who died, who rose again, That the salvation you and I have, it has been thoroughly vetted It has been thoroughly searched through. It has been well attested and recorded, carefully written down in His Word, so that what we believe is not just some fairy tale, it is truth that has been carried out from the beginning all the way to now and will be to the end. It speaks to a confidence, and then get this, look what it says about our salvation. One little small statement. Things into which angels long to look. We don't have time to fully unpack that statement, but here's what it says, church family. That that phrase, long to look, it's a very descriptive Greek verb, and it refers to the idea that someone wants to get just a split-second glance through that cracked door at, at what's inside. The way I always think of it in my mind is every kid knows where your Christmas presents are hidden. It's mom's closet. And if you're a good rule-abiding firstborn, you'll never just go and open the closet door and look. But you will be sneaky and try to find ways to go into mom's room when the door's cracked and try to quickly peek through that door to see the glory that's inside. It says the angels who are without sin, who are in the presence where God's glory is on full display, who as of right now possess a greater power and splendor than, than we do, It says they wish they could get a quick, fast look through the crack of the door of heaven at what you and I have in Christ now and in what is coming. Church family, do we really realize what we have been given in Christ? Or do we just know some facts to rattle off? Do we really understand we have been given a salvation that is reflective of God's mercy that fills us with a hope that is alive? We have an inheritance to look forward to that will in no way lose its luster or end. We are protected by the power of God. Trials are transformed we possess the ability to love and we believe something that's not just a coalition of facts that some, some weird guys from Galilee tried to come up with, but as well-intested we have right now what the angels will never even know. Do we know what we have? Do we remember what we have? Or are we more distracted in a world of sorrow by all the things of the world we don't have? let's keep moving forward. We've been told who we are, we're aliens. We've been told what we've been given, a salvation so great even the angels wish they could give just a split second. So what does all this mean? Who we are and what we've been given leads to a transformation. Look with me, verse 13, Peter says, therefore in light of all of this, by girding the loins of your mind for action, by keeping sober, fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to your former lusts, which were yours in ignorance, but like the Holy One who called you, be holy, that's the command, yourselves and all your behavior, because it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. He says, in light of all of this, in light of who you are, church family, in light of what we've been given in, in Christ, we are to fix our hope, we are to set our hope, we are to hope Notice what it says. We are to hope in the glory to be, the grace to be revealed. Because you see, in our salvation, there's a past element. We once were unrighteous and out of a relationship with God. There was a barrier of separation. And when, and when Jesus Christ, when we cried out for Him to save us at, at the conviction of the Holy Spirit, that separation was ended. We were, we were brought to the table We were adopted into God's family. There is a present element where the Holy Spirit of God who lives inside of us, He is sanctifying us. He is taking His holiness and working it out. He is exposing uh, ways of sin and ways of thinking that fall out of alignment of the Word. And He is molding and shaping us through the course of this earthly life into the image of Christ. And there is a future element where Christ returns where the dead in Christ will rise first, where those who are alive will be caught up in the air, where the fullness of our salvation, where our bodies will be transformed from broken vessels into bodies like Christ's, which are imperishable and unable to fade away, uncorruptible, where we will be given an inheritance, where we will see him face to face. This is the grace that is to be revealed to us. And it says, church family, that in light of who we are, in light of what we've been given, in light of of, of what the table represents, we are to hope on what is coming and by the way, hope, the biblical word for hope, is not the English word for hope. The English word for hope is probably better defined as wishful thinking. Really, hope the Cowboys win tomorrow night. <laughs> they could, they could not. They may, they may not. No, biblical hope is not, I hope, I wishful think. Biblical hope is this idea. There is something here in the future that has yet to happen now, but it is absolutely guaranteed. There's no way it's not happening, and because it is guaranteed, it impacts the way I live and move and breathe in the now. That's what biblical hope is. It says hope, and by the way, it tells us how to hope. It tells us how to hope. Those uh, your Bibles are probably translated like mine. Prepare your mind for action. Keep sober in spirit. Those are actually participles in the Greek, which tell you how to hope. How how do we actually fix our hope? Well, it's by te- it's it's by gearing up your mind, it's, it's not through slothfulness, it's not by happen chance thinking, it's, it's through girding up the loins of your mind, it's through taking action, preparing my thoughts, it's through being sober-minded, meaning nothing from the outside causes me to think in ways that are lesser or false. It's gonna be through a fierce determination of the grace and power of God in our lives to take captive our thoughts and to direct our glance at, at, at the reality of what is coming and then to think in light of that. That's how you fix your hope. And I simply point out to say this, you're not gonna feel your way into fixing your hope. You're gonna have to, through faith with the word of truth, think your way to hope. It says not only do we fix our hope, but it says do not not act like before you were Christians, but be holy, for he who called you is holy. That word holy means set apart, distinct, there should be something different, church family. We've already seen that. It's tied into who we are. We're aliens. So what, what makes us aliens is what we've been given, and, and it makes us even more alien because of what we've been given calls us to be holy, calls us to be holy. Not only that, but look what else he says. If you address the Father, the one who impartially judges, meaning he doesn't show favoritism according to each one's work, conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your staying on earth. It says, the one whom you call father, you know that he's Lord. You know these are gonna be an evaluation of your life. You know God doesn't play favorites. Let me put it real practical. I'm not gonna get before Lord one day and go, hey, Jesus, don't forget. I know the last name's different, but I'm part of that Draper dynasty. God's gonna go, I don't care. You're gonna get for the Lord and be the first believer from your family and you're gonna go, Lord, please have mercy. I'm the only believer from my family. And he's gonna go, I don't care. There is no partiality or favoritism with God in his judgments of our lives. Each one of us stands individually on our own and the standard is the same for all of us. And he says, during the time, and it closely ties to be holy. If be holy means live a life that is distinct, live a life that is distinct from this world because it is, it is completely and totally dedicated to the living out of God's character as revealed unto his word by the power of the spirit living within, then fear means this. Don't live a life of casual flippancy, take God serious. That's about as as common day everyday vernacular as I can make the term fear there. It means reverence, it means awe, it means respect, there's something beautiful with it, there's something uh, massive and grandeur where you realize our smallness, but it simply means this, God knows he's God and he expects us as his children to take him serious. Not only this, but what else are we to do? Drop down with me, look in verse 22. Since you have an obedience to the truth, purified your souls for a sincere love of the brethren, fervently love one another from the heart, from the very core of our being, from the very place where our volition lies, from the place where our will lies, where, where the place, the very core, of what makes us who we are. Being told who we are, being told what we have and what it means to how now shall we live, We live fixing our hope on what is to come. We live wholly set apart, carrying out God's character. We live taking God serious. And is it interesting that that the other thing he specifies is we live with a fervent, passionate, deep, unconditional love for each other. Which means as we seek to examine ourselves, Peter's just given us four ways to examine ourselves. Is my hope dictated by my circumstances such that I am hopeful when things are going well? Is my hope dictated by whether it's a good or new bad day in the news cycle? Is my hope spiky up and down, or is my hope at a steady fixed rate because it's not fixed on my circumstances, it's not fixed on what this world is, it's fixed on the fact that He is coming back to finish what He started in me and in this world. Is my life holy as He is holy? Now, don't mistake me. The very essence of our faith is the fact that we can never earn our way to holiness. Not one of us in this room is holiness by our own effort. Every one of us in this room is holy because of Christ if we are in Christ. Amen. And the call to be holy is not a call to, to work harder, it's a call to submit. Think of all that we've looked at in James, to humble ourselves before the Lord, to yield to the fact that he, God is distinct, he is different, he does not operate according to the ways of this world because the ways of this world operate in the polar opposite way he operates. Amen. Amen. Is there holiness in our life? And by taking God's, and by the way, when we say fear of God. Don't don't get this Puritanism dread upon you that the fear of the Lord, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, which produces joy in our life. When we say, Is there fear? I don't mean, as I examine my heart today, am I solemn and straight faced with. That's not what I mean. What I simply mean is, as we examine our lives, are we actively in our lives taking God serious? Think back to a passage like last week in James. Is the way that I plan my life long-term, is the way that I order my life day in and day out, does it reflect the fact that I take God and His priorities and His heart serious? Or is it reflective of the fact that I, I'm, I feel positively towards God, but I'm going to plan and order my life and I'll tack Him in where He fits? Is there, when it comes to each other, church family, as we examine ourselves today, And I'm not saying we need to examine ourselves because I'm aware of some horrible problem, but every time we come to the table, we should be examining ourselves. Do we really love each other? If we really love each other, it means you're not a nuisance to me and I'm not a nuisance to you. It means I don't get mad at the old slow songs and I don't get mad at the new fast songs. Instead, I go, you know what? Brother, sister, I love you so much I'd happily give everything that I like in my style for your good in Christ. Is there a fervent passion in the way we love one another? These are the things with which we examine. But we examine how we are to live in light of what we've been given, in light of who we've been made to be, but where does it all come down to? What is it we remember because it all comes down to what we remember. And I want you to look with me back in chapter 1 of 1 Peter, verse 18. Because here's the basis for all of this. Knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from the futile way of life you inherited from your forefathers, but with precious blood, with costly, something of value blood, as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. For he was foreknown before the foundation of the world and has appeared in these these last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so your faith and hope are in God. Here's what he says, what we remember. He says, you and I were not redeemed. We've seen that word in the last month. Redeemed is this word that refers to Uh, someone who is enslaved and in captivity, who is unable to purchase their freedom, who is unable to work for their freedom, but instead somebody else steps up on their behalf and says, I have the ransom, I have the payment, and I'm going to buy that person out of that captivity, out of that slavery, and I am freeing them. That's what redeemed means. To be redeemed is to be bought out, to bought out, to be freed. And it says, here's, here's what it says, church family, it says that you and I, we inherited at the moment of birth, no matter how cute you were, that at the moment of birth, you and I inherited from our mom and from our dad a futile way of life. I mentioned it earlier, that word futile means empty, devoid, powerless, fruitless devoid of purpose, lacking significance, that you and I inherited a way of life from mom and dad that did not have purpose, that did not have value. And everything in this world that tells us it can give us purpose and value, it's all part of this futile way of life, so it's powerless, it's unable to actually do what it promises. And Scripture is really clear that that futile way of life that we inherited is called sin, unrighteousness. Romans 3 says, for none are righteous. And it says, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So here's what Peter describes. Here's this predicament where you and I are completely and totally enslaved and in captivity. We, We are dead in our own trespasses and sin. We are born in a powerless way. We're unable to escape to buy ourselves out of this freedom, and we're outside of the one relationship that we were made for. But yet, you and I today, if we're in Christ, we find ourselves in that relationship. We find ourselves freed from the power of sin and death. Well, how did we get there? Well, it's not because we did anything we didn't. We were the ones in captivity. We were the dead one. A dead You know how much a dead body can do? Nothing. Nothing. It's not that we called out. It's not that we loved him. Scripture says we didn't love him. Instead, he loved us. It says that you could take all of the precious, valuable metals of this world, the very things that kings and queens have waged war for the whole history of humanity over, every one of which, though valuable to the human hand, is perishable and unvaluable before the holy throne of God. Amen. So that, that stuff didn't buy our way out. No it said instead, what purchased us was the precious blood of a lamb, but not just any lamb. The Israelites took the blood of lambs and put it on their doorpost, and as the angel of death came over, passed over the house where those doorposts were. Lambs were common for sacrifice in the Old Testament. It didn't say that we were purchased with the blood of the lamb, it says we were purchased with the precious blood of a lamb which was spotless and unblemished, the blood of Christ. The blood of Jesus which was shed on our behalf, because not that we loved God, but that He loved us, First John 4. He sent His Son to be the propitiation, to be the sacrifice that would please and satisfy the wrath of God, which is just the just punishment for sin, the just earnings and wages of sin in the futile life we inherited. He satisfied it in order to bring peace between two parties who were in open hostility. And we were the ones in the open hostility set against the Lord. And time doesn't permit, but if you go in and you read the book of Hebrews, it's really clear that this problem of sin that separates us from God, the only way it can be forgiven is through the shedding of blood. But the blood of goats and bulls isn't enough. But as Jesus went on that cross and His body was broken, and His blood poured out, He drank every last drop of the cup of the wrath of God. And then he said, when he had drank every last drop of the eternal wrath of God, which we would call by another term, hell, he said, it is finished. And then Hebrews tells us that at that moment, he walked into the heavenly tabernacle before the actual throne of God. And he didn't lay down blood of bulls and goats. Instead, he laid out his own precious blood on that altar to satisfy the just wrath of God that any who would believe would be covered in that blood and made right with God, whose sins would be washed away, who though they were crimson would be washed white as snow. And then he took his seat at the right hand of God because the work is done, the sacrifice was made once for all. What we well, I mean once for all is we mean once for all time. The reason which you and I celebrate when we come to the table today, church family, is the fact that if you have responded to Jesus Christ by, and in faith and He has saved you by His grace, you're coming to this table in joy remembering, not in despair hoping that this sacrifice will earn you back up. No, there's no more sacrifice, church family. Jesus is it. His work is finished as far as paving the narrow path that one might find reconciliation in life with God. We remember, church family, that Jesus shed His blood. We remember that the weight of our sin is so eternally heavy that the only payment that could cover our sin was God Himself dying on our behalf. And by the way, Jesus Christ dying on our behalf, it wasn't a backup plan. It says it was foreknown before the foundation of the world. God wasn't surprised by our rebellion. By the way, it didn't put Jesus out. It says in Hebrew, for the joy set before Him, He endured the cross. Church family, we have much to remember today. As we come to this table, and as we remember, we examine, for what costs God much cannot be cheap for us. What we mean by that is it is an absolute free gift of grace to be saved by God. But understand, if we are being saved by God, it's not just because we need the sin forgiven. We need the sin forgiven because we know we were made in the image of God for God to be in relationship with God. And when Jesus Christ saves us, he doesn't save us so we can keep living and looking and breathing like our futile way of life. Oh no, church family. He saves us that we might taste and see that he is good. That we might joyfully fear him and that holiness might pervade our life. That our hope, a real hope in the midst of a world that is full of despair, a real abiding present hope would exist in our life and a hope that does not disappoint because the moment where Christ returns is coming. And so we don't just remember what Jesus did, we look forward to what's coming Amen. as we examine ourselves to see, are we really remembering in a way that our life reflects what we celebrate at this table? And so I ask you with me to bow your heads and close your eyes. And we're going to move into a time of invitation. And Father, we, we do recognize The seriousness of what your table means. That Jesus, you really did for the joy set before you. That God, you really did, Father, out of out of your love, since you're one and only Son, that Jesus, you who are fully God and fully man, you really took our place. May we not be guilty of forgetting. Of being distracted, but Lord, as we remember today, may we examine. and really Lord may it not be we who examine, but when we simply say, Spirit, you examine me, show me, here I am, I listen. Lord if we need to repent, may we repent or if we need to rejoice, may we rejoice. But Jesus may we respond to you. And if there's any who don't know you, there is no better day than now to know the reality of your body and blood shed for us. Jesus, we look to you. It's in your name I pray.